0: Good morning, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology two podcast. So we've been working through the doctrine of Revelation, which somewhat fits under the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, by exploring the beliefs of three main schools of thought during the early 20th century. Last lecture, we talked about Protestant fundamentalism, and today we will be talking about Protestant liberalism. Now, much like the word fundamentalism, which bears a different meaning today than it did 100 years ago, the word liberalism probably evokes ideas into your mind that are not quite the same as its technical sense in the discipline of theology and biblical studies. If we use the word liberal today, you might think of Democrats or a certain political perspective. Uh, Liberal may also connote Certain philosophical ideas from the 1700s, if you happen to be a philosophy buff. However, in the realm of theology and biblical studies, the term liberalism may not relate to certain political convictions uh, or even to the political philosophy referred to as liberalism. Rather, liberal biblical scholarship tends to be associated with scholarship that is more reliant on historical critical methodology and more skeptical of supernaturalism, either by personal conviction, doubting supernaturalism from a religious standpoint, or in its methodology, by refusing to consider supernatural hypotheses as explanations for data available. This relates to some contextual issues that unfortunately we had to skip due to our extended spring break, but if you're following along on slide 7.2, you can see... References to this content, and I do have the PowerPoints that we skipped up, so you can go back and at least skim through those and read the required Miles readings if you'd like. During the era after the wars of religion and the rise of reform scholasticism, which was evident in debates like the predestination debate we discussed in class, there began to be a shift away from reliance on Uh, sources of theology like scripture and tradition in favor of the source of reason. Uh, I mentioned in the last lecture that philosophers like Descartes attempted to prove the existence of God and the truths of religion through rationality. This is known as rationalism. However, their limited success raised the question about whether or not there is a God. Simultaneously, there was an increase in what's known as secularization, Now, oftentimes, we think of secularization, or a decline in religious belief, as a direct product of scientific challenges. However, much recent scholarship on the question suggests that the phenomenon is actually far more complicated, and I wish I had time to give you the full lecture on this, but unfortunately I do not. Secularization, however, involves a shift in the fundamental assumptions of culture and society so that it is no longer easy and automatic for us to believe in God. Now, the sources of this shift are numerous. Likely, it involves uh, introduction to different cultures and religions, and a shift away from a more homogenous culture in the Middle Ages. It involves changing conceptions of space and time. It involves changing conceptions of the self and of society, and so forth and so on. So I can't explain secularization in much detail here in a minute. And in fact, the best book I know on the subject is about 900 pages long. So there's really not much justice I can do to it. But you should know that rationalism and secularization raised questions about the existence of God. Now within this context, tools of rationalism and questions about supernaturalism began to be applied to the Bible through what is known as historical critical scholarship. This scholarship does not usually treat the text on face value uh, at a surface level, but seeks to understand the historical circumstances behind the text, often even identifying various sources of the text that have been incorporated into it. So no doubt in your New Testament courses you've uh, considered redaction criticism, or in your Old Testament courses you've considered source criticism, uh, those sorts of criticisms are uh, examples of this historical critical scholarship. So, a little bit more about the rise of historical criticism. Typically, authorship of texts were disputed. So, for example, we now have the disputed texts of Paul, which are no longer thought by many scholars to be written by him. Ephesians, for example, First uh, and 2 Timothy, A number of other texts can be brought into question here. The date in which the texts were written has also been questioned. Traditionally, Christians believe that all of these texts were written by the authors that they are attributed to. So if Paul died in the 60s, then all of his letters must have been written before he died. Once you question authorship, you can begin to wonder whether some of these texts may be far later. And in the early days of historical criticism, it was not uncommon for many of the New Testament texts' dates of composition to be pushed back as late as 150. Now, once you move more than 100 years away from the dates in question, this raises questions about the historical accuracy of the text. And for that matter, it even raises questions about whether all New Testament texts reflect the theology of the apostles and of Christ himself. As a result of this, what was known as the first quest for the historical Jesus was launched, in the mid to late 1800s in particular. Now this quest for the historical Jesus sought to figure out who the true Jesus was, who was lying behind the text of the Bible. Since much of the Bible was a later composition, since it had been edited through time, and since it did not reflect accurately either the historical events of Jesus' life or his actual beliefs and teachings, the thought was that if we could uncover who the true Jesus was using historical methodology, then we might, in fact, be able to understand true rational religion that might be acceptable to all peoples. So, Fundamentally, the quest for the historical Jesus, besides doubting the account of pseudonymous or uh, text written under false names, besides doubting those uh, examples, uh, members of this quest even believe that perhaps the teachings of the disciples themselves in those texts that were actually written by companions of Christ or other associates of those companions, um, that those teachings may not match up with the teachings of Jesus himself. The belief was, if we can identify the true teachings of Jesus, then will we then we will have the true, rational, and ethical religion that we are all in need of. As an example here of the quest for the historical Jesus, I'd like to point you to the work of D. F. Strauss, who is often thought to be one of the most significant members of the so-called first quest. By the way, it's called the first quest because a second quest was launched in the early 1900s, and so this is part of the context into which J. Gresham Machen is writing, And then a third quest was launched beginning in the 1980s, which has dwindled some, but arguably is still underway in New Testament studies today. Anyway, back to Strauss, whose famous text, The Life of Jesus in 1841, uh, certainly was hugely controversial. Strauss was a Hegelian, so related to the philosopher uh, W.F. Hegel, Hegel believed the significance of Christ lie in the historical development of his ideas, not necessarily in the events surrounding Christ's life. Hegel understood all of history to be a succession of various ideas in competition with one another, but when these competitions or conflicts and ideas arose, it created an opportunity for the emergence of new ideas and a new form of consciousness related to these ideas. And so through this progress of ideas through history, we find the progress of humanity. Within this context, Strauss is convinced by his Hegelianism that the significance of Christ himself lies in, in certain ideas that are expressed through Christ, not necessarily in the events of Christ's life. So, Strauss, in his text, The Life of Jesus, is the first author to thoroughly apply the category of myth to the New Testament. Strauss believes that most events in the New Testament did not, in fact, happen, but are historicized theological claims. In other words, there are true ideas that are expressed in the form of non-historical myth, thereby rendering the New Testament extremely important for theology and philosophy, and yet more or less worthless when it comes to many details of what actually happened historically in the first century. Within this context, we begin to see one of the first key disputes between fundamentalists and liberals. Recall that fundamentalism emphasized biblical inerrancy, the idea that the Bible is without error in its original autographs, so the original versions of the text. Clearly, at this point, it should be obvious that liberalism understands the Bible to be full of myth. But despite this, the Bible is thought to preserve important historical expressions of true religious ideas. So the Bible for liberalism technically remains the source of of key religious truth, but it is not the source necessarily of historical truth. Though I should note that later developments of the category of myth would allow that certain things could be mythic and yet historically true. What's important for myth, though, is not the truth or falsehood of the historical events, but the truth or falsehood uh, of the ideas conveyed by the narration of these events. Okay, so an emphasis on myth versus an emphasis on inerrancy. Let's take a look at another key figure that will help us see another aspect of this debate. This key figure is named Adolf von Harnack. Von Harnack argues in his uh, book, What is Christianity? from 1900, that the ideas of Christianity are antiquated, they're outdated. And what's worse, much of the content of Christian theology is actually a pollution of those original details, where Greek thought or Hellenistic thought has been introduced to the more pure biblical ideas in a manner that distorts it. However, there's good news, von Harnack argues, and that is that the kerygma, or the core of the theological uh, project of the Bible, remains relevant today. So here's a quote from von Harnack. He writes, Either the gospel is in all respects identical with its earliest form, in which case it came with its time and has departed with it, or else it contains something which, under differing historical forms, is of permanent validity. In other words, if the Bible must be retained in all of the exact details in which it is found, then von Harnack argues that it is irrelevant to moderns today. We do not live in first-century Judea. We do not accept the scientific and philosophical views of those who lived in first-century Judea. We don't even always accept the ethical views of people from that time period. So if the Bible must be accepted in all of its details, then it is an outdated text that must be cast aside. However, there is a core, something essential underneath the details that von Harnack believes is what is actually valuable in the Bible. And it is this charisma that has lasting significance. So what does he identify this kerygma with? First, the idea that the kingdom of God is at hand. Many of those who pursued the quest for the historical Jesus, particularly the second quest, emphasized eschatology. After all, multiple Gospels attest to the fact that Christ's earliest teaching was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His teaching this doctrine also fits with the idea that he was baptized by John the Baptist, an apocalyptic prophet. The argument is, if you're baptized by someone, you accept their teaching, and therefore Jesus must have accepted the teaching of John. Moreover, this is probably a true event, Because it's rather embarrassing for Christians that the savior of the whole world has to be baptized by just a regular old prophet. So put all of these things together, Jesus himself likely emphasized this coming kingdom. Which means that we can radically experience God now. This was a shift from an elitist religion in a Roman context uh, where only certain members of society would be involved in cultic rituals. To a religion that offers experience of God to all peoples of all classes. Second, von Harnack emphasized Jesus' teaching of God as Father. Humans have infinite value, according to this teaching. If God is our Father, then we are children of God and therefore infinitely valuable. Of course. If you're reading along with your J. gresham Matching, Christianity and Liberalism, you see that fundamentalists will significantly challenge this statement by arguing that God is not the father of all humans because of some innate worth in humankind. Rather, God is the father of the son. And so if we are joined with the son and thereby adopted, we too can call God our father. So there's a doctrinal dispute there. Third, Von Harnack emphasized the frequent biblical commandment to love one another. So what is the true religion that Jesus understood? You can experience God now. God is radically valuable, and humans are radically valuable, excuse me, and therefore we ought to love one another. Now notice there's nothing in this kerygma that it insists upon the divinity of Christ, upon the Trinity, upon justification, upon predestination. In fact, Much of von Harnack's version of Christianity would challenge much of what we have learned throughout the course of historical theology 1 and 2. This highlights a second debate between fundamentalists and liberals, this time regarding the nature of the Bible. Fundamentalism understands the Bible itself to be the word of God in its form and in its substance, though expressed in human language. So sure, the terminology, the very language of Greek itself, the metaphors and imagery used in the Bible might seem a bit outdated because culture has changed. And yet, fundamentalism says all of the details in substance and the very form itself count as the word of God, so the true source of revelation of who God is. Liberalism in contract would deny value to the form and much of the substance of the text and yet insists that the Bible preserves the kerygma or central teachings that are, in fact, the word of God in human language. So what is revealed? It is the kerygma, the core religion of the New Testament, that God has revealed to us, not the finer details per se. One more individual I'd like to introduce you to. And this one is going back in time. So for learning purposes, I'm trying to adjust uh, things to parallel between fundamentalism and liberalism, but know that this figure comes first, and then Strauss, and then von Harnack. And in fact, this figure, to an extent, makes the thought of the other figures possible. So who is this figure? As you'll see on slide nine, his name is Friedrich Schleiermacher. Born in the 1700s, died in the early 1800s, Schleiermacher lived during the Enlightenment, a time when philosophy through the failures of Christian rationalism was gradually growing more critical of Christianity. Just as there were increasing cultural critiques due to the continued moral failings of the church, combined with the terrible legacy of the wars of religion. Schleiermacher, in that context, attempts to reframe Christian theology in a manner that it is acceptable to what he calls its cultured despisers. It's worth noting that Schleiermacher, Strauss, and von Harnack all have the noble intention of apologetics. If you are not a Protestant liberal, you will probably look with great condemnation upon these figures, but each were attempting to defend Christianity in a context where it was being attacked by modifying Christianity so that it might be better suited to that environment. So what is Schleiermacher's modification? Schleiermacher explains religion as a form of self-consciousness. So it is a way of being aware of ourselves and of the world and of God. But this variety of self-consciousness produces doctrines which are intellectual means of trying to structure that consciousness. And what is the true religious consciousness that our doctrines are trying to explain? Well, according to Schleiermacher, that true consciousness is a feeling of absolute dependence. We find that we are insignificant in the world, but radically depend upon something else for our substance, our identity, for our ability to navigate the world. Once we are aware of this absolute dependence, we can then recognize our source, God. Humanity is not a source of itself, but is radically dependent upon another, which we will call God. Who is Jesus then? Jesus is the one who mediates this God by mediating this consciousness to us in its purest form. In other words, Jesus is the one whose God consciousness whose feeling of absolute dependence and appropriate response to God in faith was the ideal. Jesus had faith and true religion in its purest form. So on Schleiermacher's account, all of Christian doctrine is an attempt for us to understand our own self-consciousness as guided through the intellectual labels of doctrine, in order that we might be able to experience God and ourselves in the same manner in which Jesus experienced God and himself. So you can see that Strauss seeking the underlying truths of the myths of the New Testament or von Harnack trying to find the true kernel of Jesus' belief are in certain ways indebted to Schleiermacher. Both are attempting to find what Jesus' true God consciousness was in order that human beings can experience that truth as well. I'm going to flash forward to one more figure that helps us understand um, the way that doctrine of revelation and inspiration works in Protestant liberalism. And that is Rudolf Bultmann, almost a century later. So Schleiermacher, in some sense, allows us to dispense with the historical and with the details of doctrine, because what is most important is the underlying consciousness. And I should note, that's a great simplification, Schleiermacher is a tremendously complex and difficult theologian and philosopher, and unfortunately, the full details of his system extend well beyond the scope of this class. Boltzmann tries to scrape away the exterior details of Christianity in a similar fashion through a process that he calls demythologizing. Demythologizing is an attempt to eliminate the mythic language here meaning something similar to Strauss, found in the New and Old Testaments, particularly the New, in order that we can express the charisma or the religious core of Christianity, in a manner acceptable today. Bultmann famously noted in the early 1900s that human beings in a modern world with light bulbs and electricity cannot believe in the same superstitions as first-century humans who would never dream of the sorts of scientific advances that we have made. And of course, the point is only more amplified when we consider the emergence of computers and smartphones and so forth and so on. Boltmann therefore, tries to restructure uh, his understanding of revelation. According to Boltmann, Revelation is a disclosure of God that puts the self in a new situation of authenticity. Now, Bultmann believed that the New Testament began with a historical belief among early Christians that the decisive beginning of the eschaton, of the end times, began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was the kerygma. But then based on this kerygma, we could see the theology of the New Testament gradually develop, shaping the presentation of a historical Jesus to make connections that Jesus himself never made. So, Revelation doesn't necessarily bring about trustworthy doctrines in the sense of saying that the details of the New Testament may not be precisely correct, uh, but God does use the Bible to bring the self in relation to God authentically as we are challenged to manifest this authenticity in light of the coming judgment and kingdom. It creates a sort of crisis moment uh, that brings about the need to uh, convert, for lack of a better term. Here again, I'm greatly simplifying Boltman, and lest I give the wrong impression, uh, you might believe that Bultmann is rather disinterested in the details of the New Testament. And nothing could be further from the case. In fact, Boltmann's commentary on John remains uh, a very significant commentary, as does his theology of the New Testament. Bultmann is certainly able to engage the specific texts of the New Testament uh, with great positive results in many respects. However, the manner in which he engages that Bible is quite a significantly different manner than the manner that you would see in many of the theologians that we have read thus far in this course. It's far more reliant on historical criticism, and it results in a theology that looks quite different in many respects from the theology that you've learned in this class. So, I don't want to reduce Boltmann or Schleiermacher or von Harnack or Strauss into a sort of caricature, where they are individuals who simply do not believe the Bible and are trying to uh, take out some minimalist teachings from it. Each of them develop quite complicated philosophical systems that are based on some form of trust in the Bible as revealing God in a unique way. Nevertheless, the form of that trust is quite different from the form that you would find in fundamentalism. And this is expressed one more time in a debate about the nature of the Bible in further detail. Fundamentalism understands the Bible to be a product of verbal plenary inspiration. God inspires the author's every words and writing, therefore making it authoritative. If you are wanting to make a theological case, you can find a verse, do a word study, understand the syntax and how it fits in the broader canon, and this will give you a true doctrinal teaching. Liberalism, on the other hand, believes that through the Bible, God works in us to make us aware of his divinity. But liberalism, therefore, is not concerned with every word. It is not plenary inspiration, but is concerned with the ideas within their historical context and the development of those ideas that might in turn provide religious benefit to us. It's a very subtle difference, and it's one that is uh, quite difficult to parse, which is why Jay gresham Matchin in Christianity and Liberalism spends so much time trying to explain why terminology that on the surface seems so similar winds up being actually quite different underneath the surface. So these are the first two options when it comes to the doctrine of Revelation, and I apologize that this podcast is a little bit longer than normal, but hopefully you can see liberalism is a bit complicated. Next class, we'll come together and consider the last option on the table, at least for our purposes, that of Neo-Orthodoxy. But until then, thanks for listening, and be well.